We pray again before we look in the Scripture together. Father, we, we cast ourselves at Your feet. We humble ourselves before You and ask You to glorify Your Son Jesus as we look at Him in the Word. And Father, also that You would help us to be not just hearers of Your Word, but doers. That is, that the truth we hear would impact us. It would change not just how we feel in the moment, Lord, but decisions we make and actions we take or actions we give up. But Father, help us uh, by the work of Your Spirit, the Word of Truth, to be more like Your Son this morning. In His name, Amen. Before we get into the text that I want to talk about, just following up on the video there, you know it's a dangerous thing to hear the Scriptures regularly if you don't do them. Serious about this. James talks about being careful that we be doers of the Word and not heroes only who deceive ourselves. And when you and I are confronted with truth claims from the Scriptures, uh, it requires something of us. You've perhaps heard the analogy of butter, that butter can be melted in the sun, but other things would be hardened in the sun like clay, but it's the same, same sunlight coming down. We have to be careful that the truth we hear from the Word is something, something perhaps that we're wrestling with personally with God, but that we're doing something about. That we don't just pat ourselves on the shoulder and say, I heard that Sunday and my life goes on unchanged. When we do that, we are in fact setting ourselves up to be deceived. We become the religious kinds of people that crucified and condemned Jesus. They had the Bible. They memorized the Torah but they didn't act on it. And that's got to be a danger for any of us. So, so whether we're thinking of Pro-Life Sunday or we're thinking of other elements of the Scripture, we don't want to just hear the Word. We want to take it in. We want to make sure we're changing with it and its demands. With that in mind, and thinking of a couple messages that you've heard recently, going back to December, we talked in December about serving with excellence. That is, we serve a servant king And we talked about following Him in that service. And are we bringing our best to bear in the arenas of life in which we are called to serve? Sometimes that's in the church locally. We talked about that. But that's also at home. It's in our neighborhoods with our families. It's at work. Are we bringing our best to bear in those places of life in which God has called us to serve? Are we serving with excellence? Are we owning that thing that we're responsible for? so that someone else doesn't have to check up on us. We own that. God's called us to serve. We're doing that. Also, we talked a few weeks ago about being on mission. That God's purposes in the world include saving the lost, seeking and saving the lost. And that's part of our call too. That it's so easy, isn't it, to just enjoy the good things God's blessed us with. And we do enjoy them and we should. And we should give thanks for those things. All good. But we don't want to lose the fact that God has called us purposefully to be on mission for Him as well as enjoying the good things He's given us. So, are we on mission? Are we thoughtfully praying about others? Are we inviting others to church? Are we having gospel-centered conversations with others just about what's their relationship with Christ? And are they going anywhere with that? What do they make of Jesus' claim? So, some of the ways we need to be involved, we need to be doing God's Word, not just hearing it. We're going to continue on the On the Road series this morning. We've only got two of these messages left. 
I hope they've been as challenging and encouraging for you as they have for me. Have you ever had an experience where you are in a conversation with someone and you're talking about someone else, perhaps in ways you would not speak to them, to their face, and suddenly you get a sick feeling in your stomach and you look around and the person you've been talking about is behind you? Has that happened to anyone else here? Maybe? Yeah, there's this moment of realization, isn't there? Life's going along fine. Now suddenly my stomach, you know, doesn't feel so good and suddenly I'm coming to grips with, with perhaps what I've said about someone else. We're smiling, that can be humorous, I know. Here's a true life story about a moment of realization, a little less humorous. True story from Chicago in October of 2012. Uh, There was a retired uh, police officer in the city of Chicago. He'd served long. I think it was 42 years on the force there. So he was in his 60s or 70s at least. His grown son was staying with him at his home because he was in between life changes. He, He just needed a place to hang out for a while while his life went through some accommodations financially and where he'd stay and all those good things. So father and son one night were watching Jay Leno. They were up late watching the TV when dad falls asleep. No big deal. The trouble was later when he woke up, he was startled because an intruder was coming through his back door. He's a retired policeman. He has a firearm. He goes and he shoots and he kills the intruder. Now the trouble is when he gets up, he sees that the intruder is his son. He has just killed his son. This is true. It really happened. October 2012. His son had got up while dad was asleep and had gone out to a store to get something and had come back. And dad didn't know that the sound of the door was junior. He he thought it was an intruder. You know, if you think about a conversation, you're talking with someone, you realize the person you're talking about is behind you. That's one level of sort of a sick feeling, isn't it? But can you imagine the moment of realization for this father, the son that he loves and cares about, you know, the one that he would do good to if he could, he is mistaken for an intruder and killed. What, what must he have felt like in that moment of realization? Dismayed, sick, unbelieving, and probably emotionally just so overwhelmed in that moment, probably just coming to grips with reality would have been a challenge. You know, you'll find in your life that there are moments for us of realization or recognition when God makes something known to us in such a way that it arrests us, it stops us, and we have to come to grips and make a decision about what we're going to do or how we're going to respond. That's part of, and it's one of the key elements of the story we'll be in this morning you've got your Bible, you can turn. I'm, I'm actually, uh, this is a detail-focused morning, so you'll have to put your thinking caps on and stay, stay tuned. You can turn back to Genesis. I will read in a bit from chapter 45, but I want to, before that, walk you through some of the key elements of the life of Joseph. You remember in this series we said on the road, we're on the road with Jesus from Jerusalem to Emmaus with His disciples metaphorically, and we're looking at ways that God had intentionally painted Jesus' portrait through key figures and events in the Old Testament. And certainly the life of Joseph is is right up there near the top in the Old Testament stories or vignettes in which we were always meant to see Jesus. 
Now, Joseph and his story occupy in Genesis from chapter 37 through 50. Chapter 38 is uh, an aside. That's about the life of Judah. But the rest of those chapters are all about Joseph. Joseph's a key player in Israel's history and one of the key pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. So, I'm going to start at chapter 37. And I'm going to talk through the life of Joseph. And then I'm going to look at some points I hope you have a a bulletin with the study guide because it's got a a lot of this already laid out there. But if you start at Genesis chapter 37, uh, Joseph was the 17-year-old favorite son of Jacob. Jacob loves him. He's the son of his old age. He's the son of his favorite wife. And Joseph is so loved by his father, everyone knows it. He's the favorite child. This can be a dangerous element in a family dynamic for sure. But if there had been any uncertainty about that, Jacob has clarified it because he has put on his young son Joseph this coat, a tunic. Some translations call it the coat of many colors. Others say, no, it's a long or long-sleeved tunic. Joe's brothers, though, had no doubt, Dad favors Joseph. And not only that, but by dressing him in this tunic, he's essentially said, Joe's not going to be out there working in the fields with you as a shepherd. Joe's kind of Jacob's right-hand man. He's the vice president, if you will, of Jacob's affairs. And he gives him the the tunic to show that. And he's his messenger. We'll see here in just a minute, too. But you can imagine some of the dynamics that might bring out in a family. Not the best. On top of that, everyone knows Dad loves Joseph more than the rest of us. Joseph has a couple of dreams, and he has the temerity to tell his family about the dreams. Now, in this time in the Bible, dreams typically had meaning, and people knew that. So when Joseph shared his dreams, they sounded like accusations to his brother. So one dream Joseph has, he says, there were stalks in the field, sheafs of grain, and and your sheaf bowed down to my grain, he says to his brothers. They say, really, our... Does that mean we're going to bow down to you, Joseph? They're offended a little bit more. He has another dream, and he tells his parents as well. He says, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they all bowed down to me. Now Jacob hears this. Now Jacob loves Joseph, but he's still a little put off too. And he upbraids him slightly. He says, are you really telling me that your mother, your father, and your brothers are all going to bow down to you? But it also says that he pondered them because, you know, God had spoken to Jacob before, hadn't he? Kind of in a night vision, a dream. He'd seen heaven connected to earth through a ladder. And his son now is saying, I've had these dreams. And so on one hand, he's a bit offended. On the other, he's like, I better keep that in mind. Well, as you know, Joseph's brothers, they envy him and they hate him. So when dad sends him up to see how they're doing, they get an idea. We're going to kill our brother. And then they say, no, we won't kill him. We instead will sell him as a slave. They throw him in a pit for a while. A group of Midianite traders comes through and they sell Joseph as a slave to this group of Midianites. The Midianites take him down south into Egypt where they sell him as a slave into the household of Potiphar. Now Joseph's made a household slave there. He's not a field slave. He's in the house. And Potiphar noticed something. Everything this guy does comes out well. And so in no time, Joseph is elevated under Potiphar to the second in command, just as he'd been under Jacob. He's elevated. 
No one in Potiphar's house, a key official, has as much authority as Joseph does. Only Potiphar's above him. God blesses him. Trouble comes up, though, because Potiphar's wife likes what she sees in Joseph. And so she's pursuing him. And Joseph keeps pushing her back. But one day she's tired of it. And so she accuses Joseph of attempting to rape or seduce her. You can imagine Potiphar comes home after his 9 to 5. He's not pleased by what he hears, so he takes his key servant, Joseph, and he throws him in prison. Joseph's in prison now, and guess what happens there? God favors him. Every place Joseph goes, he has God's blessing. God blesses him again. So that the jailer says, Joseph, you're going to run the jail for me too. Again, he's the second in command. He becomes the head over all the jail. Now, while he's in the jail, he meets a couple of interesting fellows. They had served in Pharaoh's presence. One's his cupbearer, he would pour out his wine, and the other is his baker. And one day, Joseph notices that their faces, they look like something's wrong. They, they look sad, and he asks them, what's going on? And they say, well, we've had dreams, and we're not sure what they mean. And Joseph replies, you know that dreams belong to God. God knows what dreams are about. Why don't you tell me your dream? And so they do. And Joseph interprets those dreams for them. And the, his interpretation proves, proves absolutely correct. So the, the, the uh, cupbearer, in three days for Joseph's interpretation, is lifted up out of prison, and he's back in Pharaoh's courts, favored again, pouring out the wine. But the baker, just as Joseph said, in three days is lifted up, and he's executed, just as Joseph said. Now, a couple years roll by, and even though Joe had pleaded with these guys, hey, if you get released, would you please tell Pharaoh my case? I was kidnapped. I don't belong here. Cupbearer forgets all about it until Pharaoh also has some dreams. He has a couple of dreams and they disturb him because he knows there's meaning in them. Doesn't know what to make of them and no one can tell him what they mean. And the cupbearer says, you know, I remember when you were not happy with me and I was back there in prison. There was a Hebrew and he could interpret our dreams. And so they send for Joseph. They clean him up. They get him ready for the court. They bring him into Pharaoh's presence and Pharaoh tells him the dreams. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, your two dreams, they're one dream in essence. They're one message. And God is showing you that there's going to be seven years of abundance and prosperity in the land of Egypt. It's going to be great. But then there's going to be seven years that come up after it. Famine. So severe that all of the bounty and the abundance of those seven years of plenty and prosperity, they're going to be lost in those seven years of famine. And then Joseph suggests, you know what would be a good idea, Pharaoh, if you took a shrewd, capable man and you set him over your kingdom so that during the years of abundance and prosperity, the nation of Egypt would get ready for those seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, of course, that's a great idea. Joseph, and you're my man. In fact, it's interesting in the text that <clears throat> Joseph is always the VP. Well, now with Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, in all the land of Egypt, I am the only one who will be greater than you. And in fact, Pharaoh gives him his seal. You know, back in those days, that would be like your signature. Pharaoh gave him his authority in that seal. And he put his own robe on him. And he gave Joseph his own chariot so that when Joseph went through Egypt, he was honored just as if he were Pharaoh. Raised up. Again, 
Well, the seven years of plenty, they come through. And Joseph shrewdly, he's, he's storing up the grain of Egypt. In fact, when those seven years are done, he's got lots and lots of food. So that when the seven years of famine begin, he starts selling it as a good businessman. Pharaoh's going to end up with all the land of Egypt. The Egyptians will end up as tenant farmers because of Joseph's shrewdness. But this famine isn't just in Egypt. It's also in the land of promise in Canaan. And so Jacob sends his ten sons down to Egypt to buy food. And as they're buying food, it's Joseph, though they do not recognize him. He looks like an Egyptian. It's Joseph that stands behind those folks selling the grain. And Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And we end up with a few chapters here where basically Joseph is kind of putting the screws to his brother. God is in fact testing them. God is bringing up in their minds, in their conscience, what they had done to their brother years ago. Because with the questions Joseph's asking them, they're they're feeling convicted. And Joseph says, you guys must be spies. And they're like, no, 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 we're honest men. We're all brothers. Well, They go through two trips of getting grain. Joseph gives them some grain. Simeon's kept as a hostage. They're supposed to bring Benjamin back. They do. When they come back, Joseph accuses them again. In fact, each time he sent them away with grain, he puts their money back in their sacks. The second time he does so with a silver chalice. And when they head back to the land of Canaan with the food and his chalice and their money, Joseph sends his guys back. They chase them down and they say, hey, you're stealing from our master brings them back in. And in chapter 45, Joseph can't stand it any longer and he makes himself known to his brothers. And this is a good thing and there's great restoration there. We'll read this passage here in a minute. But Joseph tells them, hey, go up, get dad, bring him, bring everybody back because guys, we're just two years into a seven-year famine. You guys need to be down here where I can take care of you. We'll put you in the land of Goshen. It's a great place. Of course, down there in the Delta area, you'll have all the the grazing you need for the flocks and the herds. You'll be near me. This is a good thing. Jacob and company come down, reunited with Joseph. Chapter 49, Jacob blesses his sons and dies. Chapter 48, Jacob actually adopts two of Joseph's sons. Chapter 49, some people think blessing is not the best word. Uh, Jacob predicts what will come to his sons and the tribes that proceed from his sons. Some things are, are better than others, for sure. And then Jacob dies peacefully with his son Joseph. And in chapter 50, finally, Joseph dies. Now, if you have a study sheet, I want to go over, uh, we'll cover most, if not all, of these points. If you know Joseph's life and you know Jesus' life, you start connecting dots real quickly and repeatedly. Because Joseph's life is full of allusions comparisons, if you will, to Jesus' own. I've got 16 on your study sheet. This might seem like a lot. It's not. Some commentators will tell you they believe there's over a hundred allusions between Joseph's life and Jesus. I want to run through some of these. If you haven't seen these before, it's important that we see them, how closely connected Joseph's life is meant to be to Jesus, that we're meant to see one in the other. Both of these men, Joseph and Jesus, are sons of women who couldn't bear children. If you remember Rachel's story, she's barren for years. 
And the text is quite clear. It says God specifically opened her womb when she had Joseph. Mary, of course, was a virgin, and it was the Holy Spirit's power coming over her that impregnated her with Jesus. Both of these women had not been able to have children apart from God's intervention. Uh, Joseph was singularly loved by Jacob. You see that in chapter 37. There was no doubt Joseph was his favorite. And whatever particular difficulties that might be in your family or mine, uh, the father loved this son very particularly, very specifically. And when you look at Jesus in the accounts of the Gospels, God says, think of his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the one. Or if you think about the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter's saying, hey, we'll build tabernacles, little tents for you and Moses and Elijah. God says, no, this is my son. This is the one. You listen to him. God the Father specifically, uniquely loves his son Jesus. Uh, Joseph's love for his father was also unique. I don't know if you catch this through the story, but it's not just that Jacob really loves Joseph. Joseph really loves his dad. Because when he talks to his brothers, before he's made known to them, he always asks them, is my father still alive? How is he? Joseph really loves Jacob. And if you look in Jesus' life, John 4, Jesus says, I live to please my father. I'm always about pleasing my father, honoring him by doing the things he wants me to do. I love my dad. I love my father. Uh, Jacob ponders Joseph's words about the dream in chapter 37. Jacob didn't like what he heard, that we're going to bow down to you, Junior. But he was shrewd enough to ponder it, to turn that over in his mind. When you get to the Gospels in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 12 and 51, the text uses almost the same words about Mary, about the shepherd's words and the words from the elders in the temple and Jesus Himself. It says Mary pondered these things in her heart. These things that were being said about her son Jesus. She still, she and Joseph still weren't sure what to make of this. They didn't have all the pieces in their mind. But it said she pondered all these things in her heart. Uh, Joseph was sent to find his brothers on this mission when he was sold into slavery, chapter 37. Dad said, hey, Junior, go check on them. Go check on your brothers. And of course, thinking of Luke 20, Jesus told the parable about the landowner who sends people to collect his rent, and they they stone and they abuse. And he says, I'll send my son, because surely they'll respect my son. And of course, Jesus was the son the Father sent for the benefit of his brothers. Joseph was hated and envied by his brothers. You see that again in the early part of his story in chapter 37. And when you get to Jesus' trial that night of his rejection, Mark 15, 10, and the next day before Pilate, it's clear that the Jewish leaders, for envy's sake, were trying to get rid of Jesus. I'm ready to confuse Jesus and Joseph every time I say this. Sorry. Same thing, envy and hatred. Point seven on your study sheet there, the brothers' own wickedness was used for their deliverance. That's a key theme, by the way, of course. That is the key theme. The brothers' own evil towards Joseph is what God will use to bring about their redemption. And we'll see 
We'll read this later in Acts chapter 2. That is exactly the point with Jesus as well. That's the key, by the way, between those two stories, the illusions that matter most. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. That God so worked the choices, the wicked, evil choices of men, with His sovereign plan and will, that you couldn't tell where one stopped and one began, but God used both of those to accomplish His will and purpose in Joseph's life and the salvation of that family and also in Jesus' life and our salvation. Uh, Point eight, uh, Joseph's cries from the pit. You see this in chapter 42. Reuben's rebuking his brothers there. The brothers say as they're thinking about what they'd done to Joseph, we refused to listen to him when we had him in that pit and the ground before we sold him. He was pleading with us for help. You know, he was begging us not to do this, and we refused to listen to him. And if you think of Jesus' life, his cry from the cross, Matthew 27, verse 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There could be nothing, in fact, there's been no sound, there's been no words ever uttered on this earth that were more pitiful than Jesus' cry from the cross. A perfectly holy, innocent son, always in the fellowship of his father, and the father forsakes him when he becomes sin for us. There's been no more pitiful cry than Jesus' cry from the cross. But you see the echo of that or the shadow of that in Joseph's pleas with his brothers from that pit, almost a grave there, if you will. Blessing was with Joseph. Everywhere Joseph went, God blessed. That's why wherever he went, he was always the right-hand guy. Because God's blessing was on him. And friends, if you're a Christian, Ephesians 1 verse 3 says that every heavenly blessing is yours if you're connected to Christ. That Christ is not only one blessed by the Father, it's in our connection with Jesus Himself that we have every blessing imaginable. We have God's providential blessing on our lives now, but we have every blessing in the spiritual places Heavenly places in Christ right now. Blessing is to be found in Jesus just as it was in Joseph. I'll run through these a little bit more quickly. You know, Joseph was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He was thrown in prison through false accusation. Jesus faces false accusations by the leaders both within their own meetings and again before Pilate. Uh, Joseph was handsome entirely. You see that in chapter 39. That's why he was found desirable by Potiphar's wife. Jesus is ultimately the ultimate bridegroom of the Song of Songs, described in chapter 5, verse 10, as radiant among 10,000. In His physical appearance on the earth the first time, Isaiah is clear, there was nothing physical that was drawing people to Jesus. He wasn't thought handsome. But as He is today, if you see descriptions of Him today, He's entirely glorious. Joseph was given a wife from among the Egyptians. Joseph's Jewish, but his wife is Egyptian. She's a Gentile. And of course, Jesus' bride, the church, is primarily from among the Gentiles, not the Jews. Joseph was prince regent to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the only person in Egypt with more authority or power than Joseph. 
Now, related to Jesus, we say that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's the title God gives Him in the Bible. But in 1 Corinthians 15, it's clear that Jesus' kingship is subject to His Father. So that two times in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Jesus submits Himself and His kingdoms to the Father. He is the Father's regent, just as Joseph was Pharaoh's. By the way, you know, Egypt in that time, most powerful nation on earth, represented the world and all the power of the world, all the wealth of the world. So for Joseph to be the, that, the, the regent king over Egypt was essentially to rule the world. Jesus, of course, will be the world ruler. Reuben had warned his brothers not to harm Joseph in chapter 37. Pilate's wife warns him, if you remember Matthew 27, have nothing to do with that righteous man. The brothers came down to Egypt to buy, if you will, to buy life. They were going to buy the grain that would become the bread that would sustain their life. They came down to buy bread, to buy life. The truth was, they never bought any bread. They never bought any grain because each time they tried to, their money was given back to them. They didn't pay for any of that grain from Egypt. It was free. They couldn't pay for it. When you get to Revelation 22.17, one of the last invitations in the Bible to come to Christ, we're told that He gives the water of life without cost. You can't buy salvation. You can't buy the bread of life or the water of life. It's free. And last, Joseph is the fruitful bough in chapter 49. Jesus is the branch from the root of Jesse in Isaiah 11. You can see, we could just keep going on and on in this list. But very intentionally, God has said, here's the story of Joseph. And through that story, I'm giving you a lens by which you can see my son Jesus more clearly. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis 45. We'll read verses 1-15. through 15. This is when Joseph makes himself known. This is the brothers' moment of realization of who it is they stand before, of, of who they had done wrong to and what their relationship is to him in this moment. So, they've come back. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard and the household of Pharaoh heard. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Think of the father in Chicago that sees the body on his floor and now realizes who it is in front of him. Joseph that we were ready to murder, Joseph that we sold, is the guy in front of us now that has the power of life and death over us. And struck in this moment of realization, they don't know what to make of it. You can imagine, they are reeling. Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. 
God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father, say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. You'd starve back there if you stay. Behold, your eyes see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. You must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. He fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. This is not only a great picture of Jesus specifically, but what a picture of forgiveness here. Joseph had his own moment of realization, didn't he? When he realizes what's going on, and maybe it was when he saw his brothers before him, Joseph had his own moment of realization, this is why this happened. He never reproves his brothers for what they did. He, he calls a spade a spade. He says, we'll look here in chapter 50, you meant something for evil. But he doesn't accuse them. He had a moment of realization where he got it that God used my brother's plot against me because he was always about using me, getting me to this position of influence whereby I would be in a position to save my brothers, my father, all my brothers, all their family. So at some point, the Scripture doesn't record it, Joseph had his moment of awakening. This is it. You remember when he's in prison, he's still saying, uh, he's pleading his case. Hey, I'm innocent. You know, I was kidnapped, I was sold, you should let me out. But at some point, he comes to grips that what his brothers did against him and the real evil they did, God had wed with his own sovereign plan to use Joseph as a savior for all of Jacob's household. So when he came to his moment of realization, he'd forgiven his brothers. There's no accusation here against them. His brothers are silent. Their moment of realization, they are reeling. They don't know what to make of this. But Joseph interprets the moment for them. God sent me before you. He doesn't even accuse them of what they did here. No, God sent me. You meant evil, God sent me. I've been on a mission from God. I didn't know it, and you didn't know it, but that was always the case. So Joseph forgives and when they stand there speechless, coming to grips with who it is that's the ruler and the Lord of Egypt, Joseph speaks for them. He says, guys, don't worry. God's been in this all along. I've already forgiven you. And I get God's plan. You're here. I'm here so that we can all be saved. Turn to chapter 50. Last chapter of Genesis. Jacob dies and they bury him. And after his death, you can imagine the brothers, they might be feeling like, Joe let us off awfully easy. Didn't even recriminate us. 
But dad's gone now. So maybe he'll change his mind. So the brothers say in Genesis 50 at verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin for they did you wrong. There's a good acknowledgement. They did you wrong. And now... Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What might brother do to us now? Dad's gone and who knows if how he felt before is how he feels now. But you see, Joseph's true. He's true right on through here. He really got it. You know, there are, there are things that will happen in your life and mine that as far as we can see at the time, or as far as someone actually intends towards us, it's only bad. It's only evil. It's only wicked. What an example Joseph is of the kind of attitude we should entertain there. Whether we can see it in the moment or not, Joseph realized, this is why I'm here, we may never realize why God causes and allows Harmful things to us in our life. In fact, my guess is most of the time we don't know in this life what God was up to in causing or allowing those things. But we can say with as much confidence as Joseph did, God is in this for good. I may not see it now. I may not know it in this lifetime. But I rest absolutely assured on the promises of God's word, thinking here of Romans 8, that God will take the most wicked, vile thing that could be done to me or against me and He'll turn it around in His sovereign purposes and plans and He'll use it redemptively. And for sure, we see that in spades in Joseph's life. And ultimately, of course, we see that in Jesus' life. You know, if you go... I'll jump through some Scriptures here in the New Testament now, focusing specifically on Jesus. Joseph's life, point by point is Jesus' life point by point. And we won't spend as much time now as we did on the point by point comparison, but think just of John 1, verse 11. When Jesus came to His own brothers, John says, He came to His own, but His own received Him not. They didn't recognize the purposes God had for Him. They didn't think highly of Him. They rejected Him, just as Joseph was rejected. In fact, if you think of John 7, it says His own brothers didn't even Believe in Him. They mocked Him about going up to Jerusalem for a feast. They didn't believe. You get to John 19, it's part of Jesus' trial, and before Pilate, Pilate knows what's going on, the Jewish leaders, they're trying to get rid of some competition here. And I'd like to free this guy. So can I set him free? To which the Jews respond, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? 
the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. We have no king but the, the ultimate rejection. The Jews couldn't crucify on their own. They couldn't condemn to death on their own. So they had to get the Romans involved. Joseph comes to his brothers and he says, hey, God's going to use me in some special ways. You're going to bow down to me. His brothers don't like it. And they try and get rid of him. And Jesus comes along and he performs miracles. And he speaks the truth of God to his brothers, both within his own nuclear family as well as the nation at large. And this is what he got. He got rejection. Now there is a moment of realization for the Jewish nation after this point. So if you turn to Acts chapter 2, like Joseph, absolutely rejected, envied, hated, and rejected, crucified, just as Joseph was sold into slavery, rejected. But on the day of Pentecost, just as Jesus said, the Holy Spirit had come on the disciples. And He said the Holy Spirit would be power to help them witness to Him. And so because of the sound of the wind, and there's all these people proclaiming God's glory in languages, a variety of languages that they hadn't learned, it draws a crowd. And so Peter preaches to that crowd. And among other things, he says this, Men of Israel, at verse 22, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, and by the way, this is only a couple months, less than a couple months, after the nation has rejected Him. By the way, isn't this interesting? On Palm Sunday, Jesus is hailed as He's brought into Jerusalem. And mere days later, the same crowds say, Crucify Him. These are the same crowds now, less than two months later. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst. You yourselves know. You've seen them. You witnessed them. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This is the Jewish nation's moment of realization. They get it. And isn't it interesting here? Look at the way Peter says that. The predetermined plan and knowledge of God you nailed to the cross. You meant evil, God intended good. God took your wicked plans and His sovereign plans, He put them together, and He provided, through your rejection of Messiah, Messiah's adequacy in saving you. You can't see where one stops and one begins. So, what did the Jewish nation say at this point? They, they get it now. So at verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Think of Joseph's brothers before him, this sudden moment. Veil is lifted. We, we get it. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We've blown it. We recognize that. What shall we do? Peter said, Repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. Peter makes it very simple. He just says, repent, change your view, your mind, your actions about Jesus. You wanted Him crucified before. You rejected Him mere weeks ago. 
Now embrace him and do so through baptism. Own Jesus, accept him, claim him as your own through the act of baptism. I love the fact that it says they were pierced, they were cut to the heart. They finally got it. Our eyes are open and we see who this is and what we've done. And so the response is simple. It's repent and believe. It's be baptized. Follow as others have before you by owning Christ in baptism. You see the same thing in Acts chapter 3. I won't read that this morning. Peter at the temple after he's healed a lame man. In Joseph's story, Joseph had dreams that if his father and brothers had been able to take seriously enough or had understood, they would have understood what God intended, at least in some way, to do with brother Joseph. And guys, we have a Bible full of predictions about Jesus, about what his coming would look like, and what and how God would accomplish redemption through him. I want to run through just a few of these. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, Isaiah said that the Jewish nation would look at the Savior and would say, we think he's been struck, afflicted by God himself. We think he's under God's curse. He's in such bad shape. Verse 5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. The nation thinks Messiah is cursed by God, but he's accepting God's punishment for their sin. He's being pierced through for them. Just as Joseph's slavery enabled the freedom and the life of all his relatives to continue. In Zechariah chapter 12, towards the end of the Old Testament, this is a passage that's not yet occurred, by the way. It says of Jesus, they will look on me whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This, this thought that at the second coming of Jesus to the earth, Jesus comes with the host, the armies of heaven on a horse, comes back to the Mount of Olives, and as the Jewish nation sees him, they see the wounds of his crucifixion. They see the evidence that he was pierced. And it's in seeing the wounds that they have this moment of realization, yet future for the nation, when they see the wounds on the Messiah coming to the Mount of Olives, they will understand this is the one our nation has rejected for over two millennia. Their response in that moment of realization is mourning and weeping. And we can infer here repentance because this is when Jesus comes to save His nation and His brethren. You see the same thing in John 19. In fact, at the crucifixion it says that the fact that Jesus' bones weren't broken and that a Roman soldier pierced His side with the spear was to fulfill prophecy. That the Jews would look on the one who was pierced through for them. You see the same thing in Revelation 1 verse 7. <clears throat> There's a coming moment of realization for the Jewish nation. At the second coming of Jesus, when they see the wounds, they will recognize that Jesus of Nazareth, the one rejected by the Jewish nation for the last 2,000 years, was in fact the Messiah. Just as some on that day of Pentecost did, 
just as Joseph's brothers recognized his role in Genesis. You know, you will uh, probably find that throughout your life you have moments of realization, sort of awakening moments when God suddenly lets you in on what He's been doing. When there's a sense of conviction or I apprehend truth in a way I hadn't known before. And really the key thing there is what we do with that. Uh, God does not give us gotcha moments to get us in the sense of hammering us or doing harm to us. These moments of awakening when the veil is lifted, they are for our salvation. If you're not a Christian, you may find yourself that you have a moment of realization where the truth of Christ's claims come through perhaps in a way that you haven't heard them before or you understand more fully in a way that you hadn't known before who Jesus is or what He did or what that might mean for you. The key thing in that moment is to respond the way the Jews in Acts 2 did. When they heard Jesus was it and we crucified Him, they said, this is repentance, what should we do? Repent and be baptized. Own Jesus. Accept the one you formerly rejected. When we come to those moments of realization as those who don't know Christ, who aren't united by faith with the Father, that's the important thing to do. Nothing else matters in life. Can you imagine if at the revelation of Joseph to his brothers, his brothers said, Joseph, we're so glad you're doing well. God bless you here in Egypt. But we're going to go back to Dad's place in the land of promise and we're going to go hang out there. We don't need you or what you have to offer. We'll we'll find bread someplace back there. Can you imagine them doing that? For For their own sakes or their children or their households? You'd say you're out of your mind. But when we hear the truth about Christ, who is the bread of life, you can't live without Him spiritually, you got to have Him. How many times do people just say, that's nice, that claim about Jesus. But, but I'm doing fine on my own. I'll go back to life as I have known it all along. What a tragedy. By the way, you know, the worst response any of us can make when we realize Jesus' claim, uh, it's not hatred, it's not absolute rejection. It's desirable to have a very fiery acceptance. That would be the best. But the very worst of all responses to Jesus is indifference. It's indifference. You know, the world, in a sense, totters on the brink of eternity, heaven and hell, and says, we're having a nice time, and and it's okay. That that story about Jesus, it's okay for some people, but we're not sure what to make. We'll think about that later, maybe. See, he's not important enough to even command our respect to say, we've got to make a decision. Worst possible response to a moment of awakening, a realization about Jesus and his claim is indifference. Is indifference. If you've had that moment of realization and you've come to Christ, and I trust most of us in here have, that is great. If you haven't, when you're the truth of God's word, Jesus is the bread of life. He's the only thing, he's the only person that will matter for you in time and eternity. The appropriate thing to do is repent and believe. Leave rejecting him behind and embrace Jesus as your Messiah. Joseph saved his brothers. Jesus came down to save us. Here's another thing, though. 
You and I as believers, we will have moments of awakening throughout our life. We will have moments where we look and we see that harmful things others meant against us were actually God's providence to deliver us, to refine us and sanctify us. And in those moments, we have to choose to forgive. Let those folks off the hook. They're not off God's hook. And go on. And be ready to bless them in the ways we're able to. You know, we'll have moments, realizations of wakenings of conscience that we are out of God's will in some arena of our life. And the important thing in that moment is what do we do with that? Do we pay attention? Do we follow the Lord in whatever that thing is He's pointing out to us? Or do we go on and say, oh, I'll, I'll think about that, Lord, and maybe get back to you on another day? And here's the last thing, too. I love the thought that man at his worst, Joseph's brothers, or the Jewish nation and the Gentiles, those are all of our forebears, crucifying Jesus. I love that man at our worst brings out God at his best, doesn't it? Man at our worst brings out God at his best. And that the worst evil ever committed in the history of the world is the crucifixion of God the Son. Nothing could be worse than that. And it's through the worst act in the history of the world that God provides our redemption. And the reason for me that's so compelling and encouraging is, guys, it doesn't matter what's going on in life, God will have His way. And He's loving, and He's benevolent, and He's merciful, and He's kind. So I can trust that whatever's going on in life, whatever God is causing or allowing in my life or yours or the cities or the nations or the world, I'm okay. Because if God takes the worst evil ever and accomplishes redemption, you and I can trust Him for the other smaller things going on in our lives or around us that God will sovereignly work all those things after His own purpose and counsel and it will be good. Father, thanks for the vivid image we have of your son Jesus in your servant Joseph. And Father, in our moments of awakening, in those, those points of time in which you lift the veil on our eyes, either to see your son for the first time, help us to embrace him, or Lord, to appreciate some work you're after in us or through us. God, would you help us to humble ourselves before you as Joseph did, and forgive others. Lord, would you help us to revel and rejoice in the fact that you're taking things that are meant for evil and you're turning them around for good. And that, Lord, thank you that you've taken our rejection, our historic rejection of your son Jesus in his crucifixion. You've taken that, Lord. And by that very fact, you've taken our sins away through his blood on the cross. In our act of rebellion, Lord, you've united us to Yourself through faith now in Jesus. And Father, for anyone in here that doesn't know You this morning, I pray they'd come to know You today. Father, for people that You're speaking to about responses they need to make to You, would You help them to do that today? In Jesus' name, Amen.